these organizations, WHO, et cetera, they're full of staff who by and large joined with the intention of doing something good for other people. You know, you can speculate people need their salaries, people are scared of speaking out. But all these people know the harm that they're doing. They know that this is inevitably a negative for health. So yeah, public health has gone completely wrong to answer your question. And it was all predictable. It's not, oh, look, um, we should have done something else. We knew what we were doing. Feeling unknown and you're all alone. Flesh and bone by the telephone. Lift up the receiver. I'll make you a believer. All right, you are back with the popular show and me, James A. Smith. Ordinarily, I like to give our guests a flattering introduction, but David Bell has such an imposing CV that I think, David, I'd rather you tell the audience what they need to know about you before we begin. I don't know about that, but thanks, James. Um, okay, as background, um, I'm a public health physician with a PhD in population health. I've worked in infectious diseases and global public health, low middle income countries, public health for the last 25 years or so. I've spent about seven or eight years with the World Health Organization, um, mainly in infectious disease, malaria, diagnostics particularly, um, more recently in Foundation for Innovative New Diagnostics in Geneva and in uh, one of the Gates organizations um, in Bellevue near Seattle that was developing um, technologies for low-middle-income country health. The World Health Organization, founded in the aftermath of the Second World War, um, has uh, as its guiding principles uh, in its constitution the following. Health is a state of complete physical, mental and social well-being and not merely the absence of disease or infirmity. The enjoyment of the highest attainable standard of health is one of the fundamental rights of every human being without distinction of race, religion, political belief, economic or social condition. And informed opinion and active cooperation on the part of the public are of the utmost importance in the improvement of the health of the people. You spent nearly the first decade of the millennium with the World Health Organization, uh, working with malaria and then with SARS. To what extent were those founding principles from the 1940s still setting the tone of things when you arrived at the organization? I think they mostly were. Um, yeah, I, you know, I was working on really trying to get diagnostics for malaria into the communities. And that was very much a focus of WHO, the, the idea of community empowerment, um, that people determine their own health and have control over their own health. It was, it was, it was a strong theme, and that was really why I was there. Um, and, yeah, it's interesting that I mean, the WHO was founded uh, on the ashes of the Second World War. Um, and the... You know, that there had been a significant involvement of public health in um, the, the work of the Nazis. And so public health had a certain reputation 
with government and you know the, the colonial history of the world at that time with um had a, I think a big impact on the way the WHO was shaped. So it has a, a World Health Assembly with one country, one vote. Um, there's no private organisations that are in the World Health Assembly. Um, the, the idea, like with the UN in general, at least on paper, was that it was for the people of the world represented by the governments. And the, the, the emphasis on health was very much in that direction. Um, increasingly, as you know, more and more states became independent and got out of colonialism. So, um, the, you know, the, the, the Alma Ata um, declaration was a, an important one in the late or mid 70s, where countries got together loosely under a WHO or UN auspices um, at Alma Ata, which was then the Soviet Union. but really reaffirmed the defini broad definition of health that you just mentioned and emphasised the whole community basis of public health. And, you know, it, it fits with what I was taught as a Western public health physician, that really you're supposed to be there as a public health physician to give good information in context to people so that they can make up their own minds on how to manage their health. So, so WHO followed that very much on a community level. And it was interesting then, you know, that there's a, you know, it's, it's clear that things have changed over the last decade or two. And there is a lot of private and corporate influence now on, on WHO. It was originally funded almost solely by the countries. It was mostly core funding. They gave funding to the organisation. The technical people in the organisation did they thought was best according to those principles. The, the funding has increasingly shifted, and this was something while and before I was there, to what they call voluntary funding, which is um, rather than giving core funding, you, you give funding to a particular part of WHO's work and you somewhat direct the WHO's work by giving funding there. And increasingly that's been directive and that's been also increasingly not country-based, but um, private foundation and even corporate based. So WHO has become increasingly an organisation that is funded by private and corporate interests in addition to countries. And those in those private and corporate interests, um, whatever their intent, tend to direct that money to programmes that they want to happen. And so effectively control a lot of WHO's agenda. So that this is the big change over the last 20 years or so. And it's reflected on the ground. And you know, when I started, I was actually visiting private companies in my role in looking at malaria diagnostics and the emerging wonder care technologies at that time. And it, it was actually quite difficult. And I had a bit of pushback that I should even go and talk to private industry. Um, and it was anathema to have any sort of full private participation on WHO committee or in WHO meetings. Sometimes they would allow observers to come in for an hour or so to a, a two-day-long meeting, and that was it. And that's changed dramatically, I think, with the a very strong influence of corporate interests, a very strong influence of private foundation interests. And 
I think inevitably we're seeing that, I mean, particularly now with COVID, if you go forward, but with the essentially it's, it's a move from a broad-based community um, controlled idea of health to a very vertical pharma-based, this is what everyone will have and we will give it to you, idea of health. Could you describe a bit more um, what has been compromised or, or replaced or lost with this growing private um, influence on world health? Uh, for example, in, in your early work with malaria, what, what did that broad-based approach, that community approach look like in practice? And how did your own kind of work uh, uh, interact with that? The idea was that communities would have control over, much more control over their own health, but it would be less centralised. So they could diagnose disease as well as um, central laboratory, and you know, which they didn't have access to. So, so it was partly just getting better healthcare out, but it, it, in the process, you were sort of empowering um, the communities to do this, and, and there was a big push then, although it is difficult to get local manufacturing, etc. That's happened in places like India, but very little in Africa. So it's um, you know, when you introduce technology, you inevitably have some centralization in supply. But the um the 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 emphasis on this sort of broad base sort of bottom-up approach has been, there's a lot of rhetoric on it, but it's been very much lost, I think. Shortly after you, you began with the World Health Organization, um, the world entered what Mike Davis has referred to as an age of plagues, a succession of uh, epidemics, uh, several mm. of which either did or could have become uh, pandemics, SARS in 2003, avian flu in 2005, swine flu 2009, MERS, 2012, Ebola 2014, uh, and so on, taking us up to uh, COVID-19 in, in 2020. Um, and that, that period was marked by, um, in addition to the sort of change in forms of funding and ownership that you, you describe uh, influencing the World Health Organization, there were also kind of responses inside the organization uh, as well. Um, in, in 2005, following the SARS and avian flu uh, outbreak, there, there were certain changes of regulations and, and definitions internally. Could, could you say something about the significance of that development? Yeah, so the, the international health regulations which were pre-existing were revamped and there was a group called GOAM, which is an acronym which um, was set up within the WHO purely to handle outbreaks and pandemics. So it, the, the, the international health regulations actually are quite strict in that they tend to give WHO almost power over its members. Um, and it, it's became quite blurred, the um, previous sovereignty of nations over their health versus could WHO actually tell countries what to do and controlled borders and so on, um, which worked potentially works 
the common good. If you have a WHO which is equally controlled by all the nations and you assume that not too many nations have various leadership, um, if the WHO is then being controlled financially by corporate or private interests, then having those sorts of regulations where WHO can demand border closures, demand certain measures within countries become really dangerous because they potentially give individuals and corporations control over country and international health. So that, that was a big change. And I think we've seen that play out a bit in the recent, um, in the COVID-19 pandemic. The way so you describe the, the other issue of having groups just set aside in WHO and elsewhere waiting for a pandemic is that you have a lot of people pay just to wait for a pandemic. And so, you know, the, the upside is perhaps you'll be prepared, but the other side is that people start looking for a reason to be useful and they get excited when a possibility comes along. And that being human, I think that really raises a risk of people overreacting, which I think we saw probably with first the... Um, well, with swine flu, with avian flu before that, probably not with the West African Ebola outbreak, but that, I think that was a really not a comparable thing. Ebola is a very different type of outbreak. It's confined geographically. Um, it's a bit like smallpox. You can see fairly quickly where Ebola is and who has it. So it's not the same as a flu outbreak or a coronavirus outbreak at all. Uh, you've written that the uh, 2005 expansion of the regulations of the World Health Organization set up internal contradictions between, on the one hand, states being newly incentivized to uh, implement restrictions on people, while also trying to kind of retain the, 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 those old community-oriented uh, principles of the organization and then 2009 swine flu as well as being the the pandemic that's that didn't quite happen in the way that insurers and uh, pharmaceutical companies were um, were sort of pressing for it to be interpreted um, that too just resulted in a greater sort of power grab really a redefinition of the pandemic <laughs> Uh, of, what, of what constitutes a pandemic and, and a, a new attitude towards vaccination. Could you say something about the way in which the kind of growing um, corporate influence on the WHO and these successive um, expansions of uh, its authority uh, with successive uh, epidemics and pandemics, um, how those two things interacted and kind of where that left us in the approach to COVID? Yeah, I think it's very relevant. It's, there's a couple of issues here. First, that there's just been this general almost hysteria over the last decade or two on pandemics. And we hear very frequently, and yeah, you know, it's reflected in these war pan, you know, the swine flu and um, avian flu, which turned out, I think avian flu killed 257 people globally. Um, after being predicted to kill 
you know, tens of millions. So you know, there was a big pandemic in 1918, 1919, which was, and it affected young people and it was, um, we didn't have antibiotics then, so secondary infection was probably a very major factor, et cetera. Before that, you go back, you know, there was smallpox outbreaks here or there, there was pandemics in the Americas or Australia or Pacific Islands where colonisation brought in completely new pathogens. There's the Black Death in the Middle Ages. But if you actually look at history, there's not that many pandemics. They're not that frequent. And most of the very severe ones were bacterial and wouldn't happen today because we have antibiotics. The, the last big fire on was 1918-19. And secondary infection due to lack of antibiotics was probably significant. So, you know, why is there such a hysteria in the first place over pandemics? So we, we have one and a half million people die every year of tuberculosis. We have 400,000 die of malaria, mostly children under five. You have about um, you know, close to a million or so die of HIV still. And many more children that die of malnutrition and malnutrition-related diseases. So that is what is killing people, and that's what's going to keep killing people. And every now and then we make it a virus pop up that kills some people. Um, but it's not going to happen very often. It's not this fallacy of you know, as we get more people interacting with wildlife because there's more people and wildlife is getting forced into urban areas or something is a complete fallacy. Humans have always interacted with wildlife. And there's now much less wildlife and most people live in urban areas. And, you know, wildlife is dying out. It's a problem. It's not. Um, and you don't suddenly get civets living in the middle of a city because the city was built on the civet habitat. The civet's just here. So I, I think the whole emphasis on there are going to be more pandemics is a fallacy. And it's, I think it's... This is what happens if you have whole organisations or parts of organisations that are just there for the purpose of pandemics. And I think we've suffered a lot from that. So I, people will make money out of pandemics um, through vaccines and antivirals, etc. Um, and we can see the, you know, the, the huge impact on corporate profits um, over this current pandemic, you know, it's unprecedented levels, and the, the shift of poor from uh, the shift of finance of money from the poor to the rich over this pandemic is a large part of that has been pharma and shifting money from the people. And none of these vaccines are actually free; they're all being paid for by us. And the money is going to pharma and to the investors. So if we really need them, that's a good thing. If we don't really need them, then it's not. It's just a huge hit on society um, for the benefit of a few. So if you have organisations that are beholden to their shareholders and their role is to make money for their shareholders, and they are exerting large influence 
through finance on global public health, which they are through funding. Then, and it's not just WHO, but even more so Gavi, which is a vaccine distribution organization, and CEPI, which is an organization set up specifically for pandemic preparedness with vaccines, developing them. So there are a number of these organizations, a lot of which is taxpayers' money, a large part of which is corporate money, and they're very much influenced by um, large, big pharma and large corporations. And you know, they may be intended for good, and there's a lot of good and well-intentioned people there, but it's inevitable that um, all, you know, these corporations also have to pay money to their shareholders. So it would almost be remiss of them once they're in this position not to bend things um, and bend the emphasis so that they end up making more money. I think that this has come to define the response. So now we have a pharmaceutical response and a very vertical one directed from above from really people to a larger extent that don't have a public health background. Is it your perception that pandemics are appealing to these sort of billionaire philanthropists, both because they're sort of ca charismatic diseases that there's a sort of heroism in, in stepping into defeat, but are they also more profitable than, say, malaria or, or HIV or tuberculosis? If you're going to give money you, as a corporation or even as an individual, I think you, you want to be seen to be giving it, you want to be seen to be exciting. It's pretty exciting to give money to save the world from a pandemic or to fund development of vaccines to save the world from the coming pandemic. And that gets in the press and people think that's pretty good. But saying that you're putting a similar amount of money into training some health workers in sub-Saharan Africa or somewhere in Asia or and that, that will allow them to see kids a bit earlier with fever and give more appropriate antibiotics to the kids or um, give them zinc and vitamin A more effectively and um, you know, improve their nutrition, perhaps help the farmers to improve the quality of the food they grow. That's sort of you know, all nice and good, but it doesn't excite anyone. It doesn't really get into the media. And it, it sort of seems boring. And But the problem is that really good, public health is, to a large extent, you know, what people would normally see as boring because it's not wading in there as a hero with a white helmet to save the masses. It's trying to figure out what those people want and what would help them most effectively or help them to help themselves most effectively and then helping them along that path. And you know, the, the way that you will reduce the burden of disease in the world is not by top-down pharma, it's by improving nutrition and improving living conditions. And that's how we in the West got better. It wasn't vaccines that saved us. Vaccines have helped a lot. But the big gains in Western public health were through better living conditions, which came with better income, better housing, and you know, drainage, etc. And then vaccines and ice icing on the top of that, but it's not the driver of better health. So if, if we're going to get the majority of the world's population to where 
the good, relatively good health that the Western world has is through those sorts of measures, which aren't exciting and take time and are mostly done by local people or local countries. So um, you've represented the the 2000s and and to some extent the 2010s as a period where there was growing influence of corporations uh, and uh, and philanthropy on world health bodies. And those outside agents were incentivizing a greater emphasis on pandemics specifically uh, and vaccines as a as a solution to pandemics at the cost of the more in many ways boring and everyday uh, kinds of health work that actually affects a far greater number of people in the world and also of course much more with the historical mission of, of, of the world health organization is that a retrospective view or, or did you kind of perceive that eclipse occurring at the time? Is it only evident to you after the kind of tragedy of COVID? No, it was becoming clear beforehand. So the, the, the SARS outbreak was a good example. And you know, I, I, was in, I was in the regional office in WHO in Manila. So when it came out of China into Hong Kong and Vietnam. So I was one of the first two or three people outside those countries involved in SARS. And, um, you know, we initially thought this was 1918 over again. Um, it seemed really severe for a short time. So uh, it, for, for a few weeks, it was sort of in that mode. And then it became clear that you could control it very well by um isolating the individuals who were pretty easy to identify because it didn't seem to have a a high asymptomatic spread. And with, and you know, it wasn't without, with a few exceptions, it didn't seem to be really aerosolized and spread that way. So it was fairly easy to contact trace and to find and fairly easy to stop. And that was clear within a month or so of it coming out of China. It wasn't spreading as fast as we feared. So you know, about two months into it, I actually you know, went back to my other work because I, I actually was like more people even then were clearly going to die of TB that year than SARS. But the, you could see, I mean, there's a lot of excitement in SARS. And um, you know, I remember being in a meeting where um, it's a, a good example of what happens. And we were on a teleconference with um, CDC and with headquarters in Geneva and others. And people were talking about it, the epidemiology and so on. And someone started talking about getting a paper out as fast as possible. And, you know, there's a race to get papers out and get the first papers out. And then they suddenly pulled themselves up when they realised what they were saying and said, oh, but we'll, we'll, we have to publish it for public health purposes, of course. Mm. 
And, <laughs> you know, yeah, but I, I can understand that a lot of people made their careers over SARS and, you know, there's a lot of excitement, but you could see the excitement. You could see people who are in public health jobs suddenly getting excited over this and wanting to do more of it. And you could see the danger that these things can can raise in, in that sector. And so I think we saw the same thing with swine flu and um, avian flu, that people get really excited by this because otherwise it can be you know, somewhat dull job in a way. You know, it sounds exciting traveling around the world and so on, but really um, just having meetings and talking about um, community strengthening, it, it doesn't get you in the press as um, a good outbreak does. And it's exciting for people to be interviewed on, you know, TV and radio and so on. We see that now. So, um, but I mean, it's worth saying, you were talking about developing vaccines, you know, if we had, it, it doesn't mean that this isn't important. And if we have another 1918 flu outbreak, a vaccine will be really helpful. And getting that out will be really helpful. But the issue is that we haven't had a flu outbreak break like that since 1918. And in 1969, we had a Hong Kong flu, which was in terms of mortality, pretty similar to probably to COVID, although it's really difficult to know what COVID mortality is by the way it's measured, but probably roughly equivalent, except it was in younger people, so I would say worse. Um, since then, we haven't had one. So do you put all your resources into getting ready for that and have institutions sitting there getting ready for that that would likely never be used? And if you look from 1969 to now, you would have had people going through the whole career not having a decent outbreak to get their teeth into. And, you know, that doesn't happen. So either you don't have those institutions or you, you build them and then they jump on every outbreak, possible outbreak that comes along and blow it up into a big thing. So that's, I think that's human nature. And I think we, we've built a public health situation where the real burdens for most people have taken a back seat, be they, um, malaria, TB, HIV, malnutrition, or even obesity mm. in the West, which is why people die to a large extent of COVID. Um, you know, we, and that's got worse over this pandemic. So we've put them in the back seat and we've turned public health into this exciting sort of rapid response, you know, first responder type, ethos where the most important thing is the outbreak that's going to come just around the corner, getting ready for that and then jumping on it. And that if you sit down and do the maths, that's not the way that you're going to save the most diseases. Probably you could argue we should put nearly all our resources into improving these underlying health conditions so that, and that is also probably the best way to get ready for the next pandemic. If we, I mean, there's, a, there's a very strong association in this one between obesity and, which is a time of malnutrition and um, mortality from COVID. If we prepared by 
really emphasizing good food, good diet, exercise, then we wouldn't see the burden in the West that we see now. It's, it's another, um, to me, kind of awful and fascinating contradiction that the kind of new uh, heroic self-image of people in health uh, combined with a new kind of emboldened authoritarianism to some extent in, in 2005 and 2009, that that coincided with the financial crash and uh, successively um, increases in malnutrition, uh, increases in um, people being vulnerable to underlying health conditions because of the enormous kind of increase of the, the wealth gap over that post-recession decade. Add to that in the British and American examples, the two examples of, of uh, countries that had notoriously awful initial um, responses to the pandemic, both of those countries um, undertook health reforms, uh, which in, in the case of Britain was really a kind of advanced austerity, um, which had the effect of making their health systems yet more complex. Obamacare in the States, ostensibly a project of the left, um, the health reform, the NHS reforms of the uh, coalition government, conservative-led coalition government, ostensibly on the right, both of them had the effect of continuing a kind of neoliberalization of health where there, there was um, uh, yet more kind of fragmentation of the system. At least that's how it looks to, to my kind of non-specialist non eyes. So on the one hand, you've got a, a health sector that is kind of newly heroic about what it's capable of doing, as well as newly incentivized to uh, be absolutely maximalist about the danger of these new plagues. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, you've got an actual kind of health capacity in advanced countries that's getting worse in what it can actually provide at the same time as you've got a population that's getting more unhealthy. So th the whole thing's being pulled in these two directions. So I think the, the US and the UK system situations are very different. Um, you know, the, the, the UK had a safety net which is the NHS, which has been perhaps eroded, um, which may reflect, you know, we've had a the last few decades an increasing inequality in society. It's exacerbated further now, but you end up with you know, a bigger gap between poor and rich, and I think the rich tend not to want to keep shelling out to help the poor. So you end up with something like the NHS deteriorating because that's there for the poor or, or middle-income people whereas the rich can go to private care and so they don't invest it in the NHS. Um, I think the US is very different. It's, um, there, there is, you know, it's very expensive. Um, it takes a large part of your salary um, when you're working to cover health insurance. And so there's... Uh, there was a very significant segment of the population who were left out. And the, the idea of Obamacare was to try to address that and try to bring them up closer to where the rest were. So, um, you know, how it's implemented or whatever, I don't know if people can argue, but I think the, the underlying 
at least what on the surface the idea of that was more to try to address these underlying um, predictors of poor health and so on and the, the lack of balance in the system. You know, there's, I think women of colour in the US have worse substantial outcomes than women in Mexico, for instance. You know, there, there are groups in the US who badly need, needed to be brought up and in terms of the quality of their health care and given much better access. So uh, I think those, they're very different examples. Um, but the underlying that both of them is the increasing reliance on pharmaceuticals and the inevitable cost that that brings to the system. And there's been a lot of instances in the US of apparent extremely high pricing and price hikes of essential drugs. And people talk a lot about um, insulin, for instance, as an example of that, where it appears that there's a tendency by corporations, pharma, to um, really milk people where they're of money where they're dependent on certain drugs. So, so I, I think they're different examples, but I, you know, that there are instances in both where this, um, really, I think, corporate, I'll call corporate greed is really um, starting to harm the system. Can you explain what you mean by um, dependence on pharmaceuticals? Um, as a as opposed to what? I mean, I, I feel like a lot of listeners will sort of instinctively feel like, you know, their doctor more readily would, would diagnose something even over the phone now without seeing them, you know, without thinking about more kind of, long, you know, long-term alternative kind of solutions to healthcare. I, th- I think people instinctively know, uh, instinctively feel like um, uh, being prescribed a pill of some kind is increasingly what happens? What happens as first recourse? But is that sort of borne out on the within the sector? Is that is that perception uh, justified from your view? Yeah. yeah, I mean, if you look at the numbers, you know, over most of the Western world, people are getting fatter, and with that comes higher rates of diabetes, higher rates of hypertension, um, heart disease, etc. So. Yeah, and you know, yeah, these are all avoidable. And so, but rather than having large programs to address these and emphasis on um, healthy foods and schools, et cetera, the, the, the emphasis is on um, advertising drugs to treat these. And yeah, you know, it, it, I know that. It's difficult to know whether this is intentional or not. You know, the in the end, uh, a lot of these corporations who sell a lot of sugar and a lot of corporations who a lot of pharma are owned by the same investment groups. Mm-hmm. So it is. There's no conspiracy there. It's just a, a business fact that there are conflicts of interest between um, what is causing chronic disease and the huge amount of money that you make from treating chronic disease and much more than say antibiotics because antibiotics you give for a few days and um, they, you know the person gets better whereas a diabetes drug is 
basically for life. And you know, there are examples where very good dietary uh, management can remove the need for diabetes drugs, but these are almost treated as fringe medicine areas. Um, and a lot of the people pushing these are dismissed. But whereas, you know, it's just biological sense to a large extent that these things work. So, but we see very little emphasis on this. In, you know, when, the, when COVID started, it was very clear very early on that it was predominantly in people with chronic diseases, particularly overweight. And the first thing we did was close the gyms and close playgrounds. So places like California, there's a study where they've shown that you know, a significant obesity in children throughout the increase in obesity in children yeah. throughout the pandemic. By a, a marked extent, it's like 30 or 40% higher. Now, the, this is translating into chronic ill health over the next few decades and a lot of money for pharmaceutical companies over the next few decades. So it doesn't mean that this was intentional, but there is a business interest in not doing anything about it. Take second best, put me to the test. Things on your chest, you need to confess. I will deliver, you know I'm a forgiver. Um, before we move on to uh, the COVID-19 pandemic, could we talk about Bill Gates? Uh, Gates stepped down from Microsoft's board last year to focus on philanthropic activities, especially um, relating to, to, to healthcare uh, in the world. Um, and uh, well, he did so in a situation where the, the Bill Gates Foundation is now the largest private non-state contributor to the WHO uh, and the second largest overall contributor. Uh, that is a considerable amount of influence and in some ways uh, makes Gates the kind of archetype of, of the sort of encroaching corporate in influence on, um, on world health that you've been describing. You were yourself uh, a director of uh, one of um, the Bill Gates Tech Care Development Labs. Could you tell us a bit about that work, how you made that transition into uh, working for Bill Gates and, and just sort of atmospherically what it was like? Bill Gates is a large funder of public health um, and giving a lot of money to public health does a lot of good and saves a lot of people. So, uh, you know, it, it it, I don't think it helps to, to personalise this in any way, but it's an example of where a very rich individual, and you can argue over you know, then whether, you know, there's a, a number of issues here. First, in society, um, should individuals accumulate such an unbelievably enormous amount of wealth uh, that they can have more than whole countries? and I'm sure that Bill Gates would have his own opinions on that as well. And, and he's not alone in being, or not the richest person out there even. So we have a situation where people are accumulating enormous amounts of money that only countries used to have. Um, 
So they could use that um, just on massive super yachts and whatever and just indulge themselves or they could give it to try to help other people and through the Gates Foundation and so on, these other entities, cases, given money, you know, for vaccines, for this, you know, training health workers, for a lot of other um, zinc supplements, etc. for a lot of work that's, pro- you know, undoubtedly saved a lot of people. The, the problems that can creep in with, this at a societal level is that you end up with a very few people, whether even for the best intentions, controlling the agenda. And the agenda ends up as what they think is best. And they're a person or a small group of people. They're not a whole country on the other side of the world. And so you end up with, um, even for the best intentions, someone putting large amounts of money where they think the best impact is for their definition of impact, which may not be, and it comes back to that, as you said at the start, the WHO definition of health, it's not just avoiding dropping dead from a disease, it's the well-being of the individual, um, physical, mental, uh, well-being of society, etc. So there's a lot of aspects to health. And it's very complex and the way that health works and public health works and the way that human behaviour works is very complex. And it's far too much for a single person to understand and manage. So, Can I just ask a, a sort of technical question? Yeah. Where, when you donate money on that scale, how much of a say do you get? How, how kind of direct is your influence? Uh, is, is, it, is it more kind of a, a sort of subtext? Uh, well, we want gates to still give the money so let's do his pet projects or is he going in there and pointing at graphs and saying do more of that um well he he has a whole organization so there's a lot of people you know working there um so i think it's a mix so money is given for instance to the global fund and the global fund use money based on what the countries themselves um, put in their proposals. So the Global Fund is the biggest funder of malaria, TB, HIV. It's separate from the World Health Organization. It's like a large bank for those diseases. It's not a bank. It gives money, gives grants. And the countries decide. And Gates gives money to that organization. And they, you know, certainly there's some have some influence on at a board level on the general directions but in the end the way the money is spent in that to a large extent is depending on what the countries ask for um another you know perhaps somewhat the opposite side is the who where you can give money and say this is for this program um, we want people employed to do this and we want it done in these countries and you know we want to fund that program the who will then run that program with that funding. So it, it, it varies from different organisations. And, you know, CEPI is set up just to develop vaccines for pandemics. So they would develop vaccines for pandemics or methods to do that. Um, 
So the, the, it can vary from just giving money to having a very directive influence on where that money is spent. And, and there's always in the background the thought, you know, as it is with a country funding, that if you do something which you know will just please a funder, then you're less likely to get money next time. And that's, you know, something that we all know in normal work. Perhaps. So there's always that influence in the background that you want to do something which is in line with your funders' priorities to shore up your chances of getting more funding in the future. So any very wealthy philanthropist will end up having an influence through, you know, both direct and indirect and subtle in those ways. Did you meet Bill Gates? Yeah, yeah, lots of times. Mm. Um, yeah, I, I mean, so yeah, I, I wouldn't talk much about that, but he's a, yeah. um, a very thoughtful person. Um, he does his own work, he reads very widely. He's um, quite involved in where his organisations are going, and, uh, you know, directed within that. So, uh, yeah, so, so, you know, the... Uh, and, you yeah, know, the, the fact that he, he is giving money for this and not just spurging it all on himself is... Um, is a good thing. Um, people can argue about and question the way that money is spent. We've talked about you know, the, ex, the the fact that it's much more exciting to fund something like a vaccine than to fund bottom-up healthcare. You know, strengthening communities, and giving it more power to look up to make its own decisions. So. Um, I think as, you know, as humans, we will always want to fund what interests us. Reach out and touch faith. Reach out and touch faith. And the conversation continues over at patreon.com forward slash the popular pod, where you'll also have Reach access to our archive faith. of patrons only bonus episodes reach out and touch things